to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Hello, listeners. This is Daria Brown, and I'm really excited to have Dr. Ira Glavinsky back. He is a clinical psychologist in Michigan, and we've had a few podcasts now. Our last one was about interoception, and we decided to take a closer look at interoception today through the lens of emotion and discuss a book that was brought to my attention in a comment to one of my blog posts of a podcast that I did from somebody who reads my blog and listens to my podcast regularly. He pointed out this book about emotions by Lisa Feldman Barrett. And so I listened to the audio version and I right away thought of Dr. Glavinsky because of our podcast on interoception and he was familiar with her work too. And so both of us are semi-familiar with her book, but not by any means expert neuroscientists on what she does research-wise, but we thought we would discuss the implications of what's in her book as much as we're trying to figure out what they are. <laughs> Welcome back, Dr. Glavinsky. Thanks, Gary. It's good to be here. You said that very well. <laughs> For people that aren't familiar, Lisa Feldman Barrett is a Canadian who had her higher education and her career in the United States. And she works in Boston and she does neuroscience research on how emotions are made. And right there is the big wave that she caused in the world of emotion. And, and I can't believe I hadn't heard of it because this book, I believe, came out at least five years ago, if, if not longer. She's been doing her research for a lot longer. I had not known about it. And it takes the stance of the constructed view of emotion as opposed to emotions happen to us or there's a universal expression for emotion. She has shown in her research that there actually is no universal facial expressions for emotion that exist. There are no universal physiological responses to emotions. And that actually variation is the norm. And these emotion fingerprints are a myth. So while um, we might assume that going like this means you're angry, it's actually a variation. Sometimes you do that when you're happy. And, and we spoke about that in a past podcast, Dr. Glavinsky, when you described the picture of Serena Williams winning Wimbledon, her expression looked like intense anger, but it was actually, you know, joy, pride, whatever it is. The other big thing that contradicted a lot of what I thought I've learned is that she said the amygdala is not the fear region of the brain. There is no reptilian part of our brain, so to speak, and the amygdala activates to whatever is novel as opposed to a fearful response. And what, what we could even start there because some people might say, well, if something's novel, that causes fear. So that makes sense. I mean, she, she found that the brain has many ways to produce fear, and it's a combination of a bunch of different neurons then that can produce fear. Let's start there. First of all, 
her work doesn't come as a surprise to me because how we learn about the world is really through developing concepts. So what, what she says, I, I believe, is that we are bombarded by sensory input. That's what's impinging upon our systems. And we have to make sense of that sensory input. So how do we make sense of sensory input? I think we make sense out of it from our histories and from our experiences. And our histories and experiences give us terms for things that we experience in the world. And so my question is, why should emotions be different than any other concept? What you have to do is you have to organize information and then we give that organized information a name. So why should happiness, sadness, fear, anger be different than understanding that a creature with four legs and fur that is on a leash is a dog and not a lion. What we need to do is we need to develop concepts of each one by thinking about similarities and differences. That, that's the way my mind works on this. Yeah, and that was one of the parts of the book that I thought was pretty easy to conceptualize. We are forming concepts and that, that makes sense to us. The part that would be surprising maybe to people is the idea that we are not having these feelings and victims of our emotions, so to speak, and having this rational brain take over, which is what a lot of the stuff that we read about, especially in our field, discusses, but that actually our emotions are not triggered, but they are constructed based on our brain doing a search with you know, millions of neurons searching for instances in our past that this happened and the concepts that we have, like you said, which are very culturally dependent. And Dr. Greenspan and Dr. Shanker talked about the cultural histories being passed across ancestors. And this is consistent with that too, where without concepts, you're blind. So the surprising part was that it's actually these concepts that cause us to construct an emotion very quickly, so quickly that we, we can't even process it. And she goes into lots of details about that, which, which we can get into. But I liked the, the way she described it as population thinking. So when we think about our brains looking for patterns and, and this um, pattern classification, you can make this mistake by thinking of a mathematical average so every uh, typical family has 3.1 kids, but there's no such thing as 3.1 kids. <laughs> it's an artifact of the statistics. And I like the way she gave that example, because just because we have an average idea of what anger looks like or what joy looks like or, or some other thing like disgust, 
it doesn't mean that it looks like that particular thing. Um, it's an average of all of our own past experiences with anger or disgust or whatever. We construct that idea. Yeah, I, I love the way you just said that because I, I think one of the things that I, I feel like I pulled out of that is the whole area of individual differences and that if we have six billion people on the planet, then what we have is six billion different ways of handling stimulation. And all of us have different um, sensory thresholds. We have different arousal thresholds. Uh, and we experience stimulation very differently. Each of us experiences um, stimulation differently. So what your experience of an emotion is, is going to be, it has to be different than my experience of emotion. And I, I think in this whole area, um, thinking about averages in some ways gets us into trouble because like you say, and you're exactly right, there, there's not 3.1 anything um, that, you know, we can sort of um, give credence to. Um, and, and what we have to look at is how our sensory systems process information if there are things that are going on in different circuits, that's going to affect how we experience the information. One of the things that Lisa Feldman Barrett talks about is liking our systems um, to airports with hubs in different parts of the country. And not every airport has um, a connection with another airport, and that's what that's what the purpose of hubs are. And what we're seeing in the emotional system is people using the word hubs for how all of us are constructed. And what it helps us to do, I think, is is see ourselves as holistic systems rather than, parts. And so where you experience happiness or anger may not be at the same airports that I experience it at. And we're all going to experience these things different, different intensity, different um, latencies, different rise times, different recovery periods. And, and I think we have to think more like that. That's, that's, that's just my thinking. And that it is all based on those concepts that we have. And that when you say the way you experience is different from how I experience it, not that we experience in a different area of the brain, because she's saying there are no areas of the brain responsible for any emotions at all. It's that there's all of these neurons filtering through every thing that's happened to construct, this is my best guess. So our brain is very predictive. And it looks for a match. And then if not, if, if whatever happens doesn't match, then 
it revises the prediction. Exactly. So she she gives all kinds of really cool examples. If you hear rustling in the grass and you think it's a snake, you start to predict, and then you see that it's just a bunny, and then you revise that prediction. Yeah, just just about that experience wiring our brain was just so optimistic and empowering because she gives the example of how we can, towards the end of the book, we can get into that in a minute about how you can sort of influence the construction going forward. Um, but I loved the example she gave of her daughter's 12th birthday party where they had the disgusting food party. And she said that they had food dye in the cheese so that the pizza looked like it was moldy and, and disgusting. And then they put fruit purees on baby diapers and some kind of drink in urine containers. And people would literally gag at the thought of having some kind of fruit puree because it looked like baby poop. (laughs) But, But our brains don't know it's a gag. Our brains know the sensory information that's coming in. And we we've had experience with substances with these consistencies, textures, colors, and therefore your brain says, ah, that's what you're going to drink or that's what you're going to eat. And based on, yeah, based on the past experience of baby poop and, and they actually smelled poop, even though it was fruit. Yeah. And that's where, you know, you get the prediction error and the correction, the brain changes it when it doesn't match with the prediction. The, the other thing, Daria, um, I, I don't know if I'm putting a plug in for this, but the difference between theories that people have and data that people collect from research, and I think that that's a really important piece of Lisa Feldman Barrett's work. She's a researcher. She makes her statements from data that she gets. Um, It reminds me when I was a kid, I used to watch the program Dragnet. I don't know if you remember that. And um, I forgot the detective's names. Jack Webb was the the person, the actor. Um, but he would say, just the facts, just give me the facts. And then Lisa Feldman Barrett does her work like that. The, the data that she has um, comes from, the, I, I think, really high quality research. She spends a lot of time teaching um, and doing research. And, and, and so she has her own theoretical frameworks but she has the data to back up what she's saying. And not only in the experimental setting where they're doing functional MRIs in the lab and showing people different things or whatever and seeing what regions of the brain activate different types of neuroscience research like that, but they're also doing all of these meta-analyses where they're looking at hundreds and hundreds of studies that corroborate all of the stuff that is disproving the old classical theories of emotion. And they've, they now have this constructed theory of emotion that everything they're finding is supporting. What it feels like is that we tend to often struggle with people who see the world 
in a different way and introduce new concepts to us. You know, if one way of thinking goes back to Plato and Descartes, people aren't going to be so ready to accept something new that doesn't fit in with things that we've learned centuries ago. So I, I think part of the problem with her work um, isn't her work. It's people being able to fit this new concept, this different way of thinking into their thinking. And, and again, for me, when I read the book, one of the things that just struck me over and over again was that this neuroscientist had data to back up what she was saying. She wasn't coming from, you know, just left field and making a statement. She, she really presented the data that supports what she's presenting in writing. Yeah, and I'll definitely put a link to her TED Talk. And there's another good lecture that she did at a university that's a bit longer, like I think over an hour. I'll put links to those in the blog post for today's podcast too. It's a really good overview of what was in the book. She has a wonderful, wonderful, very small readable book that goes through everything that we've talked about today and puts it so clearly. It's called Seven and a Half Lessons, I believe. That's the book after the book that I'm talking about. And that's going to be next on my list for sure. (laughs) It's something like maybe a day's reading. You pick it up and it's hard to put down. And it's really, in some ways, it's like bullet points. Each chapter just makes it very, very clear what she's saying. And um, very much like I think we're talking today. This is something that's definitely going to change the way I think about everything. And part of this new theory, which is why we decided to discuss this, involves interoception, since we did our last podcast on it. And she says that it really is the origin of feeling and that it's basically whatever our body, all we know, and this is the only thing that exists from birth, is you know if you feel pleasant or unpleasant. And then she named a researcher, I think James something Russell, I think was his name, uh, that made the circumplex of pleasant to unpleasant. And the other side, I believe, was arousal. So like calm to agitated. And that's as much as we know. And then our concepts build around those things as to why we're feeling that way and she's saying that like our brains are totally wired for that predictive precision. Mm -hmm. And if we were merely reactive, we would be way too slow to survive. So our brain is constantly comparing the predictions to the sensory input that's coming in. Basically what we're constantly doing is simulating our reality, which was almost sounds like sci-fi movie, right? But (laughs) this is actually real life. We're simulating every simulation we make impacts this, she talks about a body budget. So we have a body budget and we have introceptive sensations. And based on what we're feeling, our body sends signals. Like if you feel unpleasant, we have to figure out why we feel unpleasant. Is it 
something that's happening or is it just a stomach ache or are we hungry or whatever? And that drives the feelings that you create about it. So her talking about interoception as this basis for all of this was really interesting to me. How I think about it, and it's, it's very consistent with the interoception literature and research, it would be with the idea of um, where interoception fits. And where it fits is at really at the initial stages of taking in lots of sensory input. And so we have the sense of sensations and we have the sense of sensations, positive and negative, like you said, high arousal, low arousal. So we're getting information about this input. And when we put these sensations together, what we put them together towards are emotional names. So this sensation, this sensation, and this sensation, oh, I'm feeling angry right now, or something like that. And like you say, it happens so quickly, and it's happening all the time. And, and we, we have three systems that figure into this. We, we have a system that's called the salience system. And the salience system tells our brain what's important and what's not important. We have a default system that relates to thinking and mentalization activities that go on. And then we have our executive function system. And these three systems work in sync. And what you come out with from step one, I'm calling interoception, and there may be other step ones, two sensations, three feelings, and based on those systems working together, you have the concept of your feeling or my different feeling of what the experience is. So all of these systems have to work together. Yeah, what I thought was interesting too is that she referred to that as affect. So she said, babies are born with this affect, which is either positive or negative and, and then some intensity and that that can mislead you and you can experience affect without knowing the cause. Mm -hmm. So you're like more likely to treat that affect as information about the world rather than about your own experience of the world. And, and she gave a funny example of being on a date in grad school where she said yes, but she wasn't really attracted to the person and, and she started feeling stuff in her stomach and that. And she thought, oh, I must be attracted to him. And went home and found out she had the flu and that's why she was feeling those things in her body exactly she said that this affect depends on the interoception and she likened it to brightness or loudness so that was really interesting an interesting take on that interoception piece which it's in line with what we discussed last time that we're aware we are have some kind of awareness or not of all these things going on in our body but 
it took it takes it to the next step where you search for a way to label it and come up with this concept of what it might be yeah well if you think of the model that you've just presented so um we have these four quadrants so we have a vertical axis of valence what i'm experiencing is positive or negative i have this positive feeling okay the horizontal axis is intensity high low so i have a positive experience that has high intensity that can be lots of different feelings so now what we have to do is we have to do some figuring out well how do we do the figuring out we do the figuring out based on our experiences and our cultures and then we come up with something but you can have lots of different things going on in each of those quadrants but it's 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 sort of like a cloud it's not clear what that is until you are able to um develop or organize that concept that gives you the answer to that and towards the end i want to get into her applications of this but it's just so interesting how she talked about that it's actually not seeing is believing but believing is seeing and that the world takes a back seat to this vision because the sensations don't necessarily reflect the actual state of your body because the affective feelings aren't really coming from inside your body it's the interoception um she said infuses us with the affect which we then take as evidence about the world it's strange because on the one hand we think we have some control over things that we don't but then she's saying we do have control over things that we didn't think we did it's 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 kind of a little bit of a thing to wrap your head around but just basically having this interoception network that regulates your body budget is the way she words it and and i like that because she goes into later about illnesses and stuff like you you have your body's just constantly regulating how much do i have to assign to that feel to that thing to that thing to that thing based on all these senses coming in and that's your body budget so oh if i i see somebody who stresses me out coming down the street my body budget is taxed because now my brain sends all these things to me like oh watch out here comes this person and then based on all these ideas and concepts and past experiences with the the person your brain predicts whatever you think might happen <laughs> oh they're going to insult me or oh, they're going to do this to me or whatever but it's it's only a simulation that our brain has created yeah yeah and she talks about you know the what you're talking about really the body balance body balance is allostasis and the body can be bombarded and overloaded and, and we we call that allostatic load and and what the body is continually what the brain is continu- continually doing is helping us balance um that that's the main thing and our body gets out of balance and how can we get ourselves back into balance that's that's the cost benefit part of the um the equation that you're talking about and it's interesting because she says even same 
supposed experience in two different times can be perceived as something totally different just because of your interception. Right. So doing something when you're hungry and doing something when you're when you're not hungry and your body budget isn't as taxed. She said, every thought, memory, perception that you construct includes something about the state of your body, a little piece of interoception. Yeah. So it's not, what did I see last time I was in this situation? But it's also when my body was in this state. Exactly. And any change in affect, uh, pleasant or more or less, or calm more or less, is the result of all those interoceptive predictions. Yeah. But but what you have working really is interoception and extraoception. So the context that you're in, like again, and you're and you're saying it, the, the context that you're in, those external signals that your body is experiencing, they're going along with the internal experiences, and then you are looking at balance or not balance. Yeah, like the things that we're seeing and hearing, they aren't influencing how we feel. It's that what we feel is altering what we're seeing and hearing. Exactly. It's a different way of conceptualizing things. <laughs> I love how she brought in the interpersonal component because, of course, in DIR floor time, we're thinking about interpersonal interactions. And she talked about how your affect is your best guess of the state of your own body budget. Is, is what it is and that it's in the driver's seat. Forget about rationality. You can't overcome emotion with rationality. That, that is a myth. But then she extends it to that other people can impact your body budget too. And this is all about the co-regulation we do in floor time when you interact with others, you and they synchronize breathing, heart rate, other physical signals, and holding hands, having a photo of a loved one reduces activation in your body budgeting regions of the brain and makes you less bothered by pain. She says, if you're standing at the bottom of the hill with friends, it'll appear less steep and hard to climb than if you're standing there alone. Uh, growing up in poverty, if you have one supportive person in your life, it helps you because usually in poverty, your, your body budget is taxed more than if you weren't. So it, it's just a lot of this stuff is stuff that we use anyway in therapies and different forms of therapies. But she now has sort of had a lot of brain research to back it up. Yeah. What I'd like to do is I'd like to give you an example that I, I think fits in with all of this. But, but something to think about. I had a phone conversation with someone who um, was really struggling with his child who was out of control um, and really creating havoc. And in the conversation, we began to talk about how we differentiate good experiences from bad experiences. And when he's with his child and having a good experience, you know, all of the sensations, you know, give signals, this is going right and boy, do I feel good about it. 
And then something happens, like he has to go to the market and the child says, I'm not going with you. I'm not going to put my coat on. And there is this struggle. So the struggle comes from him becoming reactive, him becoming angry. And now we're into a real bad experience struggle. And, and I, I said to him, I have a different feeling. And the feeling that I have is that experiences are experiences and that valence, that positive, negative, if you could take that out of the equation, my hunch is that you'd be dealing with the struggling experiences in a very different way. So we're playing this game with the dollhouse and, oh, are we having a good time? And that's great. The dollhouse experience is a really good experience. And now I'm asking you to put your jacket on because we have to go to the store. And you're saying, no, I'm not going to do it. And so my brain is telling me that now we're into the not putting my jacket on experience. And I'm going to engage with you in the very same way I engaged with you with the other experience. It's just another experience. And I'm going to spend the time with you we're going to resolve it. And all of that affect is going to be settled because I'm working on both experiences the same way. And I, I'm not exactly sure of the fit in, but it really feels like it fits in with what we're talking about with Lisa Feldman Barrett's work, that if I change my concept of this is a terrible experience to this is just another experience. And I spent 21 minutes with my child um, at the dollhouse experience. I may have to spend 20 minutes with the, I'm not gonna put my coat on experience. Maybe if I change that concept, it'll be easier for me to handle my child's behaviors. How does that sound to you? Yeah, I mean, she basically says, Successful communication requires that you and your partner are using synchronized concepts right. and we're creating these concepts and they're usually based on goals. So in that point, uh, the, the dad has the goal of going to the grocery store and getting the code on and this is what it means. And she's saying that you can shift that concept to I'm in a play session with my child, or I don't know if that's how you would word it, but I'm in this experience with my child and it will then look up different exactly. experiences and predict a different response instead of rushing, being angry, you're in a playful mode. And so, yeah, I like that. I mean, I, I love how she said how this develops where kids learn that emotions are these events that develop over time. It's not like the happy face, the sad face that you hold up in preschool. And they start to see like there's this beginning or this cause. And she gives the example, mommy arrived and I smile and she smiles. And then that's the middle. Uh, the beginning is mommy arrived. The middle is this goal that's happening now. Oh, I'm happy to see her. And then the consequence of meeting the goal, which is I smile, mommy smiles back to me and we hug. 
And so that instance of the emotion concept is what helps to make sense of this longer continuous stream of all this sensory input that comes in and it divides it into distinct events. And the distinct events aren't out there objectively. Like she gives the example of a rainbow. A rainbow is not stripes of seven colors or six colors. It's a stream, a wavelength of different lengths or whatever, but we divide it and we do the same with our experiences. And that's how our concept of emotion develops because we divide it into all of these, the, the instance of one emotion concept helps to make sense of all of these longer streams of all these distinct events. And, and so it's, it's basically our perception that we learn from creating all these concepts because she gives the example of alexithymia yes. where people will see shouting men and most of us will say they're angry at each other and people with alexithymia will say oh there's two shouting men or if we feel the pain in our stomach we'll say oh i'm hungry whereas they'll say i have a feeling in my stomach <laughs> and that gets to the interoception piece Mm -hmm. Oh, the alexithymia is, is very clearly connected to the interoception and, and it actually can change. And I think we talked about this last time, can change the therapy. I think I gave the example of, of the child who um, was angry with the therapist because they were trying to teach him how to breathe when he saw anger coming down the track. And he said, wait a second, I don't feel anger coming down the track. I, I feel anger the moment before I'm going to explode. And that that's all the interoceptive piece. Mm -hmm. Just having this awareness of interoception is maybe this idea of I feel good or not, but she's saying that we're predicting the rest and that it's not anything more than based on probabilities. So... She said it's akin to natural selection, which is interesting. So, oh, maybe I think it's this, but it might be this. And then as the incoming input changes, we, we change it. But I mean, in that case, I know she also talked about like why emotions feel like they're triggered, but she said, we're actually simulating that concept of an emotion before this cascade happens <laughs> and your brain's planning the movements even before you enact any agency for actually moving. It's like, I, I think we'll need to discuss it for a long time before you could totally make sense of all of the different things, but um, it seems to be happening to you, but your brain is just creating that experience. And so how do you explain that to a child who feels that it's, it's just come up at, at the last moment. I mean, you can't say, well, actually your interoception predicted this and, and then your brain searched for instances where blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, you know, just sort of um, highlighting it, what you're saying is that our brain is a pred predictive organ. It predicts our brain is one step sometimes more than one step ahead of us. And, and that's why we can, you know, get into difficulty because we miss that misstep between what you're thinking in the moment 
versus what your brain is predicting in the moment. They're not always in sync. I thought it was very interesting the way she described regulation as just categorization. It's just based on what you categorize it as. And then, of course, having someone else to synchronize that with you, which again, we talk about as co-regulation, but you know, you perceive, you remember something, you categorize, and then you make meaning for it. We talk about meaning making in floor time too. Like if our child doesn't have a concept of what apple is, then it's not as meaningful to them. Whereas if they've tasted an apple, taken a bite, they know how it feels, the weight of it, then they have a concept of that meaning and that, and that makes sense. But the other thing about emotions that she said was that it requires a perceiver. So it's not just something that exists, that happens to us, that exists. We have all, all, everybody has the, these emotions. No, it like, it requires that perceiver. So, so she's really, I, I think, turned things a little topsy-turvy. And of course, there's going to be a lot of controversy with it. There's another book that, you know, you might be interested in. Um, it's a second edition of The Nature of Emotion that Lisa Feldman Barrett has a few sections of it that, again, may clear up some of the things that I, I think people are just not understanding because of the newness. I think if you munch on it and you you think about it, I, I think it makes sense, clearly. I think it fits in with all sorts of things. I certainly think it, it fits in with, with the DIR, but I, I think that what all of us need to do is we need to take time, you know, to step back and to think about it, you know, maybe to read pieces of it over and over. I just feel really excited about it. I, I, I feel like her work for me really turned my therapy around, my understanding of therapy. So I, I would like to recommend it to everybody. Me too, for sure. And I just wanted to end off our podcast with some of her suggestions that she gives for takeaways, which I thought was so much in line with what we talk about in DIR, in the DIR model, Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, DIR floor time. Um, Well, first of all, she says it's about managing our body budget balance. And so obvious things like sleep, exercise, nutrition, But she says, secondly, you can work on your concepts. So gain new concepts, hone in on the existing ones. So instead of just saying angry for everything, distinguish between different types of anger. Like I was enraged. I was, um, of course, now I can't think of any other words for anger, but all the different gradients uh, hone in those. She calls that emotional granularity and give yourself lots of new experiences. Um, I liked that she said, words seed your concepts, concepts drive your predictions, predictions regulate your body budget, your body budget determines how you feel. She said, give your kids lots of concepts, speak about the bodily sensations and movements as emotions and other mental states. So elaborate on your emotions, their emotions, other people's emotions, give them lots and lots of words. I wonder what caused that. What are their consequences to others? 
um, and your detailed explanations to, to the kids help build their own concepts and helps create their social reality. Because she says, really, this is all about social reality. It's not some objective thing, these things that exist out there. Exactly. Um, and, and that helps them have tools to regulate their own body budget, make sense of their sensations, communicate how they feel, and influence others effectively, especially for mental illness. This is where I thought she could get some controversy because she says, you know, they always talk about the power of positive thinking and gratitude. And she's saying, yeah, positive experiences create new predictions. Because if you are focusing on negative experiences and you're ruminating all the time, you're giving yourself more instances of negatives in the pool where it searches for predictions. So next time something happens, you're more likely, because it's probabilistic, to pick out those negative instances of stuff that happened to you going forward. And she said, if you want to try and influence how emotions affect you in the future, have more positive experiences, think about things that make you happy, go and move. That's the one thing. The other thing that she said that was so relevant for our kids is to move. If you start to feel down or whatever, like get up and move, change your predictions. And that changes your experience and, or change your environment, change your location. She talked about how Marine Corps people or people in Vietnam, I can't remember what military thing she was talking about, were using heroin all the time, but very few of them used heroin when they got home because the environment changed. Whereas we ha had such a big problem with heroin addiction in, in the United States anyway, for sure, and other places too, because of the environment doesn't change. And then finally, she says, recategorize so we can have discomfort, which is physical, and we feel that. But the suffering is more personal because it's our affect that transforms that sensation into something that we've predicted based on all of these other things that have happened to us. So we have to recategorize things. And she just gives simple example, like if you're about to write a test and you're all anxious, try and recategorize it as I'm really excited because I studied so hard and I'm going to get this finished. And, you know, all of this, she acknowledges, this is all easier said than done. But her point is that they've taught people this stuff and they've shown in the lab that you can make transformation by recategorizing your pain as physical discomfort. Self-reflection can help change yourself. Um, it's not easy, but it's possible. And, and a lot of these things are you know, we talk about getting our kids to move. We talk about helping our children label emotions and, and feelings. And yeah, it's just, it's really interesting. Uh, the other thing that was controversial is that she said that autism, ADHD, and, you know, whether it's depression, anxiety, a lot of these things might be where the hub is sort of broken. Right. Um, and, and you have a hard time making predictions and so that was her theory of autism is that there's faulty or no predictions happening. And that's why they're just constantly overwhelmed by sensory stimulation because you're not able to predict what's going to happen next. So future research will shed light on, <laughs> on these things. If the connections aren't there, you can't do a good job of predicting. The, the last thing that I, I want to say is I, I think as a culture we need to do a much better job with younger and younger children, teaching them, I, I think the word would be granulation, 
of emotions and doing something like having um, a chart or a whiteboard and being able to give that child different words for the intensity of anger. Here, <laughs> what we tend to think about is you're angry or you're not angry versus gradients of anger. We don't have that vocabulary. You know, the, the words are out there, but, but we tend to see it sort of in a, a cloudy way. I always forget if that's the seventh or eighth developmental capacity that Greenspan talks about, that I feel more angry than I did yesterday. Right, right, right. And that's the teaching the gray area thinking. Right. The, I think it's the eighth capacity, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think the seventh is what multi... Multi-causal. Right. So it might have been this, but it might have been, yeah. Yeah, so I think we could do a better job with young kids. Yeah, it's certainly a lot to think about. And um, like anything new, it probably takes 20 years to come into the mainstream. I did like how a lot of the stuff was in line with what we talk about being so important to, to help our children calm down and regulate uh, with that co-regulation piece where it's just maybe the mechanism of it is different than we thought it was. But what she's saying to do is is what we talk about in floor time, which which was really interesting. I, I just feel real excited about this work. I'm glad I'm so glad that number one, I'm glad you you invited me to talk about this. Number two, I'm really happy to hear that another person came across this and has the same feelings that I have about it. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for doing the podcast today. And listeners, viewers, please check out the blog post at affectautism.com where I'll put links to everything we're talking about. And please, um, if anybody out there is having like really interesting thoughts about this or reactions, or we, we'd love to hear your comments, whether it's whether you want to email me at the contact email page on my website or comment right on the blog post, it'd be great to get some feedback about this. And I'm sure there'll be more discussions happening in the future. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you, Dr. Govinsky. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions.